Well, it's been a couple of weeks since we were last together, so let me just spend a few minute, minutes in terms of review. As you know, we're in the book of 1 Samuel, and last time we finished chapter 5 of 1 Samuel. There we saw that the Philistines captured the Ark of God. Sometimes it's called the Ark of the Covenant. Sometimes it's called the Ark of the Testimony, because in the Ark was the testimony of God. Remember in the Ark are the two tablets of the Ten Commandments, which are referred to sometimes as the testimony. Also in the ark is Aaron's rod that budded, and also in the ark is a jar full of manna. And so the ark of God was this golden box, literally a box, a rectangle. And on the top of the rectangle are two cherubs. On the, on the, 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 the two cherubs guard the mercy seat, which is the... the top of the of the ark itself and above the mercy seat is where the shekinah glory where the special presence of god resides and so the ark represented the throne of god the ark represented the special presence of god among his people among the israelites the israelites are engaged in battle they lose the battle and the philistines as is common in that era When they win the battle, they take the gods of the defeated people. That was a very common practice. The Assyrians did it, the Babylonians, the Egyptians. And so the Philistines do what everybody else does. They take what they think is the God of Israel. They take the Ark of the Covenant. The Israelites had brought the Ark to battle because they thought it would give them some special mojo, some special kind of hocus pocus. They'd lost. They'd been defeated the day before in chapter 4. And so then they call for the ark, which is at Shiloh. That's where the temple is, excuse me, the tabernacle is at this time. They call for the ark. They bring the ark the next day, and they uh, lose exponentially worse the next day. And in that loss, the two sons of the high priest, Hophni and Phinehas, are killed. The ark is captured by the Philistines. And so what we saw in chapter 5 last time is, the, is that the Philistines take the ark to their temple, to the temple of their god, which is Dagon, and they put the ark next to Dagon, and they do it as a trophy. They treated the god of Israel as just another one of their gods, as an idol. And so when they put the ark of God, sometimes referred to as the ark of the covenant or the ark of God, who was between the cherubs, when they put the Ark of God next to Dagon, they come the next day, and Dagon has fallen down off his pedestal, and Dagon is now face down before the Ark as if he is prostrating himself in worship before the God of Israel. So they, they, they pick him up. Dagon can't pick himself up because he's a no-god. So the Philistines pick up Dagon, and they put him back on his pedestal, and they come back the next day, and Dagon now is back on the floor on his face, prostrated before the Ark of the Covenant, but this time his head is cut off and his hands are cut off, which is a custom that victorious soldiers, that victorious warriors would do to their defeated enemies. The, the, the armies would do it, the, the, the Egyptians, the Assyrians. And so now on day two, God displays that Dagon is not just a god who, God, little g, false god, who worships the true God, but Dagon is a God who is utterly defeated before the true God because he is like a vanquished 
soldier with his head cut off and his hands cut off. What God, the God, the true God, the only God, the God of Israel, what he was doing when he was humiliating and decapitating Dagon is he was giving a sign. He was giving a sign to the Philistines that there are no other gods. There are no other gods other than the God of Israel. But of course, the Philistines ignored that sign because they liked their trophy. They liked the golden trophy that they had captured from the Israelites, the Ark of the Covenant. They didn't want to get rid of their trophy. They wanted the power of the Ark because they thought, well, if the Israelites get some mojo, they think they get mojo from the Ark, then we want some of that magic too. And so that's why the Philistines, despite the signs from the God of Israel humiliating Dagon, their main God, that's why the Philistines ignore the sign from the God of Israel and they keep the Ark So God sent them a plague we saw last time. It was a brutal, brutal plague. It was a plague of tumors. And the Hebrew word there for tumor, as we studied last time, probably means hemorrhoids. The Philistines, many of them died from this plague of hemorrhoids. And we'll learn today that the tumors came from an invasion of rats, an invasion of of mice. You know, mice or rats, they carry the plague. And one of the symptoms of the plague, I'll say this delicately, is abdominal issues. Maybe that's the delicate way to say it. And so you see the connection here between the tumors and the mice, because the mice were the, the couriers. They were the messengers who delivered the tumors. Understandably, the ugliness of this plague caused the Philistines to want the ark to go. Get it out of here is what we saw at the end of chapter 5. Get the ark gone because it it was transported from Philistine city to Philistine city to Philistine city, three of the cities, and each of them suffer. And so finally they say, just get it out of here. Send it back to the people that it belongs to, to the Israelites. Last time what we saw in chapter 5 is we saw the omnipotence of God. The all absolute power of God, the limitless power of God as he displayed the impotence and the ineptitude of the God of the Philistines, Dagon. We saw the sovereignty of God connected to that as well. And so this time in chapter 6, we will see not two attributes of God like we saw last time, sovereignty and and omnipotence. We'll see those two. We'll see three though. We're going to see sovereignty and omnipotence again. But today we'll also see holiness an attribute of god that we must must take seriously that the philistines didn't take seriously and they were taught a lesson that the israelites will not be taken will not take seriously today and they like the philistines will be taught will be schooled in the holiness of god so that's background that's context and review from last time let's get to our passage chapter 6 verse 1 reads like this now the ark of the lord had been in the country of the philistines seven months And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners, saying, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how we shall send it to its place. Seven months. They kept it for seven months. This is the stubbornness of the Philistines. I don't know about you, but the the, the minute that plague showed up, I would have said, Get it out of here. Right? But they're stubborn. They're hard in their hearts they're slow to get rid of the ark they kept hoping 
that the ark would provide the lucky charm that they had snatched it for, the purpose that they had snatched it for. But in their idolatry, they were hard in their hearts. They were stubborn. That's what idolatry does. It produces hardness of heart. Notice what they do in verse 2. They call on who? They call on their priests and the diviners. You see that phrase in verse 2? The diviners. The priests and the diviners. They know that this is a spiritual issue. The Philistines do. Now, diviners, what they would do is divination. Divination was something that was very, very common in the ancient world. It involved the use of omens, the use of omens and signs to get spiritual insight in order to foretell the future, in order to determine the will of the gods. It is described as a detestable sin. Divination is described in Deuteronomy 18.12 as a detestable sin that brings capital punishment on the Israelites. God treated divination with such disgust and disdain that it was a capital offense in the Mosaic Law. You see that capital offense in Leviticus 20, verse 27. And this is one of the reasons why God issued the ban on the Canaanites. Remember when God issued the order to the Israelites to go in and to destroy the cities of the Canaanites, to destroy, to slaughter everything that breathes, the men, the women, the children, the animals, everything, to put everything under the ban. This is one of the reasons was divination. There were a number of reasons that God gave to put the Canaanite cities under the ban, which, which the Israelites did most of the time, not, not all the time. They violated the order of God. But I, what I want you to see is the seriousness of divination. And the reason God issued the ban to put those cities under the ban was to protect the Israelites so that the Israelites would not copy, would not mimic what the people of the land of Canaan did. But sadly, the Israelites didn't fully obey God, and ultimately they copied what the Canaanites did. What diviners would do in divination in the ancient world is they would use physical things to try and get spiritual insight. They would cast lots, for example. They probably didn't use, you know, one of your, your Vegas piece you know dice um they're probably not using something like that it's probably some pebbles or something that you know maybe they've been painted one side's been painted and another side has a different a different symbol on it that's cut into it or something they use some sort of objects that they would cast like you would cast dice and the they would read what the dice would do or what the what the lots would do they would use that to determine spiritual insight what the will of the gods were they would cast lots they would use animal livers so they'd cut open an animal take out its liver and they'd examine it i mean there there, there were writings writings that taught people how to engage in proper divination there's there's proper divination and there's you know kind of improper sloppy divination So the writings taught them how to engage in this divination. You would cut the animal open and you would take out of its liver. And if it's bumpy, or if it's smooth, the liver's smooth, or if it has certain patterns, certain lines in it, then it means this. If it's bumpy, it means that. If it's smooth, it means that. If it has certain lines in it, it means that. If it's of this size, it means that. If it's of this shape, it means that. 
It means that the gods are telling us, the bumpiness on the liver tells us that we should do this or we should do that. Usually they're binary decisions. That's what the divination would reveal. This or this. That's what binary, you know, everybody talks about binary, binary. Binary just means this or that. Two options. And so they would cast lots. They would examine animal livers. They would study fluid in a cup, right? You have fluid in a cup, and you would, you would, you would stare at it and study it, and somehow that would reveal to you what the spirits, what the will of the spirits were. They would study flight patterns of birds. They would study the pattern of arrows in a quiver. They would study a solar eclipse or a lunar eclipse. They would study the constellations of stars. This is the pagan pattern of divination, the detestable sin that God described in the Mosaic Law. Now, sometimes God told Israel to use physical things to determine spiritual insight, right? I mean, he told the high priest, he, he told the high priest that the tradition was, that the requirement was, the divine requirement was for you to cast lots on the Day of Atonement, on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. You're to cast lots. You read about that in Leviticus 16. The high priest is to cast lots to determine which goat is to be treated this way or that way, right? One goat was to be slaughtered for the sins of the people. That's what Yom Kippur is. It's the day of atonement for the sins of the nation. So one goat, the high priest was to cast lots, Leviticus 16, to determine which goat is treated this way and which goat is treated that way. Which goat will be slaughtered and which goat will be the scapegoat that will be run off into the hills representing how the, the people's sins are sent away. But God told them to cast lots, told the high priest to cast lots to determine that spiritual insight. There's also the Urim and the Thummim, which were small objects that were kept inside the breastplate of the high priest. The small objects were kept inside there, and the high priest would use them to determine the will of God. We don't know exactly how they were used other than to get divine answers. You see them referenced in Exodus 28 and Numbers 27. So as we see all this, we have to ask ourselves a question, right? I mean, what's the difference? What's the difference between the Israelites casting lots, the high priest with his umim and his thummim? What's the difference between them and the sailors on, the, on Jonah's boat who are casting lots? What's the difference between the high priest who's told to cast lots to determine the, between the scapegoat and the, gate, the goat that will be slaughtered? What's the difference between that one and the, the, the physical objects that the pagans would use in divination like studying the, the patterns of a liver? The difference is one is consulting the divine and the other is consulting demons. That's the difference. Because one is consulting demonic forces and the other is consulting the God who is the, the, the answer to the question is very simple the difference is which power is being consulted which power is being consulted which power is being is the person going to to look for the answer there's nothing wrong with seeking spiritual insight in fact we should seek spiritual insight mortal man has been hardwired to seek a higher power. 
The problem was they were seeking a higher power outside of the living God. They were seeking a higher power that was not the God who is. They were looking for a cheap counterfeit for God's power, a cheap counterfeit for God's insight. They wanted the power of the, the, of the divine without the person of the divine. That's the distinction between the detestable sin of divination and the specific orders from God to the high priest to cast lots or to use the Urim and the Thummim. Now, divination is very common today, right? I mean, don't think that divination, that's for those dummies back then. No, 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 no. We love divination. We engage in divination all the time. When I say we, I mean the, the pagan culture that we live in. Believers engage in divination. That's why believers often consult their horoscope. I'm a Gemini. I'm a Taurus. What does the paper say for me today? In other words, what do the stars, what do, the alignment of the stars, what do they give me in terms of spiritual insight? That's why the believer consults the horoscope because the believer is engaging in the detestable sin of divination. That's why a believer plays with a Ouija board or a believer looks at tarot, tarot cards or gets his fortune told because the believer is engaging in divination. The believer wants the spectacular without the sacred. This is the detestable sin that God spoke of and that the Philistines are engaging in. When the believer engages in these mystical things to try and determine the will of God, it's because the believer does not want to submit to God. The believer has an authority problem. You have an authority problem if you refuse to submit to God's ways, to God's word. That's what divination is all about. It's about refusing to submit to the living God and instead looking for spiritual insight somewhere else. As believers, we have all of the spectacular that we need. We have God inside of us. The reason we're not amazed that God the Holy Spirit lives in us is because we don't believe it. The reason we don't view that as spectacular that God resides in your person is because we don't believe it. That's why it doesn't wow us. That's why we look for something else. That's why the believer looks for the horoscope. Because the believer doesn't believe because you don't feel it. Right? You don't get all juiced up and say, I feel the, feel the Spirit. No, you believe it by faith, by submission to the authority of the Word of God. Because if we believed that the Spirit lived in us, it would change our life. If we submitted to the Spirit, if we asked the Father to use the Spirit to guide us, it would change our life. But we don't do that because we really kind of only remember that the Spirit indwells us when we come across a passage that talks about it. But God has empowered us. We have all the the spectacular and the supernatural that we need because God lives in you. We have the living Word of God. We have the written Word of God. We have the spiritual gifts. We should study the the Word of God to determine the will of God because the Word of God reveals the will of God. He uses it to reveal the will of God. You don't open the Bible and say, should I marry this person or that person? Should I work at this job or that job? Should I go to this school or that school? The Bible doesn't tell you that, right? No, you study the Word of God. And then you ask the Lord to guide you and then you consult someone who is, who's been maybe in the faith a little longer, who's been studying the Word of God, maybe someone who's got a few more gray hairs or maybe less hair, right? 
You study someone who's been in the Word of God. Excuse me, you, you take the advice, the counsel of someone who's not a baby believer. We should be studying the Word. That's spectacular. We should be praying. Spectacular. We don't have to go to a priest. We go immediately to the third heaven in our prayers. We should be confessing our sin. We should be turning from our sin. We should be allowing the Spirit to do His work in our lives. And we should get advice from godly believers. We don't need divination. We don't need the horoscope. We don't need the Ouija board. God, as only God can do in our passage today, is going to pull off the spectacular. What God's going to do is He's going to take the detestable sin of divination and He's going to use it to to elevate His name. He's going to use it to bring glory to His name without compromising His holiness, as only God can do. The reason God can use sin without compromising His holiness to make Himself look good, of course He already looks good, but to display His goodness, to display His glory, the reason He can pull that off is because He's not just holy. He's sovereign. And He's omnipotent. He can do that which is unimaginable. And so what we're going to see in the passage today is that God is going to use the sin of these pagans, the sin of divination, to bring glory to His name. And of course, He will do it without compromising His holiness. Then we get to verse 3. And in verse 3, we see the priests and the diviners giving their advice to the Philistines. Look at verse 3. They said, if you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but you shall surely return to Kim a guilt offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand is not removed from you. You see, the spiritual leaders of the Philistines understand that their people have offended the God of Israel. They don't think that the God of Israel is the only God. They just know that their people, that the Philistine people, have offended the God of Israel. And so what they tell the people of, of, of Philistia, which is the name of the region of the Philistines, they tell the people of Philistia, you do what you would always do. Do with the God of Israel what you would always do with any God that you've offended. You offer a guilt offering. You've trespassed against him. Offer a trespass offering to satisfy him, to please him to appease him. This is what we do with Dagon. This is what we do with the Ashtaroth. This is what we do with Baal. We'll do it with the God of Israel because you've trespassed against him, the priests and the, div- div- uh, the diviners say. Offer a sacrifice to appease the God that you have trespassed because obviously he's stronger than our God. He's stronger than Dagon. Don't offer... He's not... The the, the priests and the diviners aren't saying offer a sacrifice to Dagon. They're saying offer it to the God of Israel because he's stronger than Dagon. He's humiliated Dagon there in the temple. They're telling the the Philistines to do what they would do with any other God. Look at verse 4. Then they said, said, What shall be the guilt offering which we shall return to him? These are the, the, the Philistines talking to their spiritual leaders. And the spiritual leaders said, Five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For one plague was on all of you, on, all, on your lords. Verse 5. So you shall make likenesses of your tumors. That had to be pretty nasty, right? So you shall make likenesses of your tumors and likenesses of your mice that ravage the land. 
and you shall give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will ease his hand from you, your gods, and your land. So what the spiritual leaders of the Philistines are saying is that for each of the five lords of the Philistines, each one of them is required to give something of value. Number one, each of the five lords is required to fashion out of gold, we're not talking gold on the outside, the whole thing is gold, a tumor. I don't know exactly how they did that. But to fashion a tumor of gold, and then to fashion a rat, a a mouse of gold. So now there are ten of them, right? One tumor, one rat for each of the five rulers of the Philistines. See, this makes perfect sense, doesn't it? I mean, this fits perfectly. This is how you satisfy God, right? I say sarcastically. This makes perfect sense for a diviner. This makes perfect sense for someone who consults the, the, the constellations of the stars because they make it up as they go along, because they're the authority. See, this is the distinction between submitting to the God who is, who reveals himself, and not submitting to him. Because when you don't submit to him, you're God. I'm God. We're all God. We make our own rules. So these priests and diviners of the Philistines make their own rules. Make ten golden images, very valuable golden images. And what this divination is doing is, you know, maybe it's got a little magic in there tied into it. Magic as they would think of their, their effort to, 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 to muster power Divination is determining the will from the supernatural, is determining how to proceed from the supernatural. Magic is, deter- is, is accessing the power of the supernatural. And so here you kind of have divination plus a little magic because what these spiritual leaders are saying is make these golden rats and these golden tumors, we're going to have 10 of them, and we're going to send them out. When we send out the ark... We're going to send out these ten golden things too. And so it's this idea that if we send out the imagery of the plague that's been plaguing us, if we send out the rats and we send out the tumors, then the plague will leave because those golden images are symbols of the plague. Those golden images are gone. The plague is gone. That's the idea that these spiritual leaders came up with. Now, notice this language that they use here. They say, give glory to the God of Israel. You see that? Give glory. The diviners, the pagan priests of the Philistines, say, give glory to the God of Israel. Verse 5. That's a very interesting phrase to me. This is coming from the pagans. This is coming from those who do not submit to the God of Israel. It sounds good. Doesn't it? I mean, that phrase sounds, hey, right on, man. That sounds good. There's a problem, though. There's a problem that's happening here. The problem is that the Philistines don't view Israel's God as the only God, right? Israel's God is an exclusivistic God. And you see that right in the Ten Commandments. Commandment number one, thou shalt have no other God before me. Commandment number two, thou shalt make no idols. 
The God of Israel is an exclusivistic God. And so when the, when the spiritual leaders of the Philistines say, give glory to the God of Israel, they don't mean the living God of Israel. They don't mean the exclusivistic God of Israel. They mean he's one of the gods. One of the gods that we worship. We got Dagon, we got all these other gods, and he's just one of them. It's a problem. It's a huge problem for the Philistines, and sadly, it's a huge problem for us. Sadly, our culture has rejected the notion of an exclusivistic God. We're not that different than the Philistines. We're not that different than the pagan spiritual leaders of the Philistines. We have rejected an exclusivistic God. We have rejected an exclusivistic Jesus. We have rejected a Jesus who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one, no one, no one comes to the Father but by, but by me. We've rejected that Jesus, and so now we've just added Jesus to our pantheon of gods, right? Because we are, of an, are a nation of idolaters. We love idolatry. Sex, power, money, leisure, entertainment. We studied the idol of equality last time, and we just add Jesus to the list. Jesus, he's good. He's a good teacher. He's a moral, moral man, a good man. And we should follow him if it sounds good. He's just one of the many gods that we as a culture have. You know, there was a time when our nation had Christian leaders who would openly and publicly proclaim and promote biblical principles. They'd refer to Christ, not as, a, and as, as an expletive, but they would refer to Christ as the one who is the one true Christ of God. They'd refer to the Bible. They'd refer to Christianity. When I say Christian leaders like that, I'm talking about President George Washington. I'm talking about President John Adams. I'm talking about President Abraham Lincoln. I'm talking about Supreme Court Justice, the, f the first Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, John Jay. I'm talking about Associate, Associate Justice of the Supreme Court, Joseph Story. I'm talking about state legislators like Patrick Henry or Samuel Adams. We don't have time tonight to look at all the quotes. If I showed you the quotes, you would weep because the quotes are so entrenched in Christianity. The quotes are so direct about the link between Christianity and this nation. The link the connection between Christianity and our culture and our laws and our court and our legislature, legislatures. So we don't have time to get into the quotes. One, one day we'll, we'll look at those quotes, but what I want you to see is that we've fallen, is that we're not that different than the Philistine spiritual leaders here, than the Philistine diviners and the Philistine priests. You see, today... If a Christian leader, if a Christian elected official wants to promote a biblical principle, he does it indirectly, right? He doesn't do it directly. She doesn't do it directly, right? What the Christian legislator does is, you know, my, I can't support that bill. My faith tells me that I can't support that bill. That's what you hear today. When was the last time you heard a senator stand up on the floor of the Senate or a representative stand up in the House of the, uh, in the United States House of Representatives and say, you know what? I can't support that bill that promotes abortion. Why? 
because that is an offense to God. Why? Because the scripture says that we are weaved, that God weaves us in our mother's womb. When was the last time you saw a senator cite that passage from the Bible? Psalm 139, verse 13. You don't see it, right? When was the last time you heard a representative stand up on the house or, or even on cable news and say, look, we can't have this bill about transgenderism because the Scripture says it's an abomination before God and, and, and have that elected official cite Deuteronomy 22.5, which is what it says. That's the word, abomination, in Deuteronomy 22.5. No, 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 no. We've got to argue about bathrooms. We've got to argue about swimmers, about athletics. Why? Because no one speaks directly about the wickedness that is before us. Not even our elected officials. They don't speak about it because we don't speak about it. Because we don't have the courage to speak the truth in love. But speak it. Yesterday, the House of Representatives passed a bill legalizing same-sex marriage. And it passed with a huge majority. It was like every Democrat and like 40-something Republicans. I haven't looked at the legislative history, but I doubt, I doubt that any of the no votes stood up in the House and said, I cannot vote for this bill because Leviticus 18.22 says that homosexuality is an abomination before God. I bet you won't find that in the legislative history from yesterday, from the no votes I'm talking about, the ones who opposed it, because they don't actively oppose it. They kind of, I, I can't vote for that. It's an indirect opposition. It's not a direct statement about the God who is and His ways. What's changed? What's changed in our nation from having leaders who have the audacity to proclaim the absolute truth of God as it relates to our country, as it relates to our laws, as it relates to the executive branch, to the legislative branch, to the judicial branch. That's, what we, that's how we started. What's changed from then and now? What's changed is we got new gods. We got new gods. We don't have the God of our fathers anymore because our God is not an exclusivistic God. Just like the Philistines, just like the spiritual leaders of the Philistines, the diviners and the priests who had a multitude of God, a pantheon of gods, that's what we have. We have a number of different gods. The God that we worship in this nation is not an exclusivistic God. Our culture no longer views the God of the Bible as exclusive, as an exclusivistic God. And this is why Christian politicians engage only in indirect opposition to ungodly bills, to bills that they know are ungodly. I've had this conversation with a state senator, and he said, look, we can't, I, you know, I, the minute I bring up the Bible, I'm alienated. I'm isolated from the conversation. And so they don't bring up the Bible. They don't bring up the exclusivistic. We kind of cringe at that word. The Bible is exclusivistic. The Bible, here we go. I'm going to say it. Discriminates. God discriminates against false gods. We will see that before the evening is over. 
God discriminates against those who take his holiness lightly. And his ways, his word, discriminates against that which is opposed to him. This is why our Christian politicians today only oppose these ungodly things indirectly. Because they know that if they are open about biblical principles, that the response will be antagonistic and visceral. Visceral. Our culture is hostile to the notion of an exclusive God of the Bible and to his ways. And the reason we're hostile to it as a culture is because we're concerned about blasphemy. We as a culture are concerned about blasphemy. About blasphemy against our gods. Blasphemy against our God of equality. Blasphemy. We're concerned about blasphemy against our God of freedom. You heard me. Our God of freedom. Our God of equality. And most importantly, we're concerned about blasphemy against the king of the gods. Me. And you. That's the king of all the gods. Humanity. The gods of our pantheon. The gods of our culture. Humanity. Because what humanity does is humanity uses the subservient gods of equality the, the, uh, and, and freedom and sex and power and leisure and all these other gods. And so we are concerned about blasphemy as a culture. It's just we're concerned about blasphemy against our gods. God, little g, against the pantheon of gods that we have. The reason why there is a visceral an antagonistic response to an exclusivistic God and to his ways is because a God that is exclusivistic delegitimizes false gods, discriminates against false gods, delegitimizes ultimately the one who makes the false God. Right? A God who is exclusivistic delegitimizes me if I make a false God because ultimately the power in idolatry is not in the idol. It's in the idol maker because the idol maker makes the idol and he removes the idol. And a God who is exclusivistic requires submission. He delegitimizes my false view or your false view that we are God or that we can create a God other than the true living God. Now let me be clear about something. Obviously, obviously, I'm in favor of equality and freedom, but I'm in favor of them as our founding fathers designed them. Our founding fathers who were not those who believed in multiple gods. Our founding fathers didn't give us equality and freedom without boundaries. Whatever you want to do, with whomever you want to do it, however you want to do it, whenever you want to do it, that's freedom the House of Representatives would say with their bill yesterday. That's equality, the House of Representatives would say. That's not the freedom and the equality that our founding fathers gave us. Limit, uh, unlimited in terms of not no, having no boundaries. That's not the freedom and equality that they gave us. Instead, they gave us freedom and equality that was limited by the precepts and the principles of the exclusivistic God of the Bible. They gave us freedom and equality that was subservient to the God of the Bible. Subservient 
to the ways of the God of the Bible. I'm in in favor of equality and freedom that is bounded, that is limited by biblical principles as opposed to what we have now, which borders on chaos. Clearly, we have sexual chaos, right? I mean, just whatever you want to do, go for it, right? It's a sad, sad situation that we're in, and we're... Our thinking is not that unlike the Philistines. The Philistines had a problem that they didn't view the God who is as an exclusivistic God. And so when they said, give glory to the God of Israel in verse 5, they didn't mean only to the God of Israel because they wanted to keep their gods intact too. It's just the God of Israel had spanked their other gods so that, hey, we got we to gotta give glory to him because he's bigger than our gods, but we still have our gods. That's what's happening here. Look at verse 6. Then they said, what shall be the guilt offering which we shall return to him? Excuse me, verse 6. That's verse 4. Why then do you harden your hearts? These are the, the Philistine spiritual leaders speaking. Why then do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? When he had severely dealt with them, did they not allow the people to go and they departed? What's happening here is that the God of Israel, what the God of Israel had done to the Egyptians generations earlier was known. It was known internationally. It was known in all of these different areas. Truth is truth, even if it comes from an unbeliever. Obviously, we need to be cautious when an unbeliever is speaking about God. Usually what an unbeliever says about God is false. But here... These unbelievers are saying something that is true. The Philistine diviners and the Philistine priests speak the truth about the God of Israel. Don't harden your hearts like the Egyptians did. It's true that the Egyptians did harden their hearts. So what we're seeing here is the sovereignty of God, where God can use even an unbeliever to speak truth about himself. Then in the next few verses... The Philistine spiritual leaders return to their divination. Look at verse 7. Now, therefore, take and prepare a new cart and two milch cows. Those are, those are cows that are milking, that are nursing their young. Now, therefore, take and prepare a new cart and two milch cows on which there has never been a yoke and hitch the cows to the cart and take their calves home away from them. Take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put the articles of the Lord, which you return to him, as a guilt, excuse me, take the articles of gold, which you return to him as a guilt offering in a box by its side, then send it away that it may go. So when you send the ark, send those ten pieces of gold, the five rats of gold and the five tumors of gold. Put it, put it next to the ark. Verse 9. Watch. If it goes up by the way of its own territory to Beth Shemeth, then he, God, has done us this great evil. But if not, then we will know that it was not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by chance. This is fascinating. This is fascinating. Here you see the inconsistency of unbelief. The unbeliever lives by ambiguity and by uncertainty. Without absolute truth, life just drifts. It just drifts like a log in the ocean. It drifts from one thing to the next. The Philistine priests and diviners are now flip-flopping here. They're hedging in this, you know, 
a little bit, you know, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna put our bed over here and we're going to put our bed over here. Just, we're not, we're not really sure. We've got to flip-flop. They're hedging in what they're doing. In verses 3 through 6, they said, give glory, to the God, give glory to the God of Israel. Don't harden your hearts before the God of Israel. When you send the ark back, honor the God of Israel by giving him valuable golden images, right? Verses 3 through 6 are, we're telling you, Philistine population, how to get rid of the plague. Make these 10 golden images, give honor to the God of Israel, and the plague will be gone. But now at the end of verse 9, they say, but on the other hand, the plague might just be the result of chance. Right? That's the word at the end of verse 9. Chance. It might be from the God of Israel, so give honor to the God of Israel, but it might be from chance. This is the uncertainty of unbelief. We need a little abracadabra. We need a little hocus pocus because we don't know the diviners say. Here's what the divination is that they're describing. You know, if you put all this together with the milch cows and the, and the calves, here's what they're saying. Take two nursing cows, right? Two mama cows that are nursing their calves and hitch them. They've never been on a yoke. They've, they've been nursing their calves. Hitch these two mama calves on a yoke and hitch behind the, excuse me, hitch these two mama cows on a yoke, and they're going to pull a wagon and go separate their calves somewhere else. The natural tendency for the mama cow is to go with the calf, right? So to nurse. The mama cow wants to nurse, and the calf wants to nurse. That's the natural tendency. But what the diviners say, because they just make it up as they go, is they say, okay, take these two mama cows that are nursing, separate their calves, Put the two mama cows to pull a cart. Put the ark on the cart. Put these ten golden valuable things on the cart as our, as our sacrifice, our trespass sacrifice to the God of Israel and see what happens. If the two mama cows go back to their calves, then we know that God didn't cause this plague to come upon us. But on the other hand, if the two mama cows go to Beth Shemesh, an Israelite city that's on the border of the Philistine territory, and they take the ark to Beth Shemesh, to Israelite land, then we know that God brought this curse upon us, brought the plague upon us. If they just go back to their calves, God didn't bring the curse upon us. It just happened by chance. The plague just happened by chance. And the implication is, you can keep your trophy. You can keep the ark. Because if it just happened by chance. This is the, the, the counsel of the diviners. This is the recommendation that they give to their people as to how to deal with this spiritual issue. So the Philistines follow the divination advice. Look at verse 10. Then the men did so and took two milch cows and hitched them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. They put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the likenesses of their tumors. And the cows took the straight way in the direction of Beth Shemesh. They went along the highway, lowing as they went, mooing, in other words, mooing as they went, and did not turn aside to the right or to the left. And the lords of the Philistines followed them to the border of Beth Shemesh. Is this not impressive? 
you see the sovereignty of God on display in these verses. Notice verse 12. The cows take the highway. (laughs) The cows don't go back to their calves, and then they don't just kind of wander. How do the cows know? Did someone send a text to the cows so that they know there's the highway to Beth Shemesh? I mean, look at the map. Right? This is the map we've been, we've been studying. Right? The, the battle happened here between the, the two towns of Aphek and Ebenezer, the battle between the Israelites and the Philistines. So the Israelites go to Shiloh, they get the ark, they bring it back. And day two of the battle, they lose. These green lines are the Philistines who went up to battle. So the Philistines win on day two. They take the ark down to Ashdod, as we saw last time. Then they, the, in Ashdod, they get the, the plague of tumors and rats. So then they send it to Gath, Gath, and then they send it to Ekron. This is where it is right before the, the diviners give this advice. So the, the, the cows... The, 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 the milking cows, I don't know if you can see this, the milking cows go north because there are hills here. They go north and they go along the Sorek River. There's a, there's, a, there's a road here. How do they know to get there? Did the Philistines tell the cows where to go? Of course not. The cows are being moved like a magnet to bring the ark of God back to the Israelites, and they're mooing. Mm. You've heard a cow moo, right? You've heard the cow moo. The, why are they mooing? They're mooing because they want to go back home, right? It's painful to not nurse. They're ready to nurse. They want their calves to nurse them, to nurse from them. But they're being drawn like a magnet as they moo, wanting to go back. But the God who is sovereign moves the moors to move the ark back to the land of the Israelites. Because the cows know their master. Unlike the Philistines, the cows know the true God who is their master. This is obvious then to the Philistine lords. right? The Philistine lords know that this has all been the hand of God, the plague, the cows acting supernaturally, all of it. And so without compromising His holiness, God has used the despicable sin of divination to bring glory and honor to His name, to the Philistines, to the pagans, and to the Israelites. Because the Israelites will have a glorious response at first. Look at verse 13. Now the people of Beth Shemesh, these are Israelites now, were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And they raised their eyes and saw the ark and were glad to see it. This is the wheat harvest. Harvest time in an agricultural society is a time of joy. It's a time of celebration. And so now their joy is magnified because... The ark of God has returned to them. The special presence of God has returned to them. The throne, that which represents the throne of God on the planet, among the people of God, the Israelites, is back among the Jews. Look at verse 14. The cart came into the field of Joshua the Beth Shemite and stood there. 
where there was a large stone, and they split the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. The Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was in it, that was with it, in which were the articles of gold, and put them on the large stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices that day to the Lord. When the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned to Ekron that day. Seems like everything is well with the world again, right? The ark is back among the people of God. And it's not just back among the people of God. It's in the possession of the Levitical priests, right? The Levitical priests were the ones who were charged with the responsibility to care for the ark, to tend to the ark. You can read about that in Numbers 3 and 4 and Deuteronomy 10. It seems like everything is well with the world. But if we look at this in detail... We see all kinds of things that are messed up. All kinds of things that are wrong in these passages. Number one, sacrifices are supposed to be offered on the Lord's altar. Deuteronomy 12. You're supposed to offer the sacrifice at the tabernacle. You're you're not authorized just just to have willy-nilly sacrifices wherever you want to do it. The sacrifice is supposed to be offered not in Beth Shemesh, but where the tabernacle is, and ultimately then later in time when the temple was. Now, right now we don't know definitively that the tabernacle is in Shiloh. That's where it started out. But a point came where God destroyed Shiloh. We learn about that in Jeremiah 7. And so the Philistines may have destroyed Shiloh in that battle where they took the ark from the battle. We don't know exactly. So we don't know where the, where the tabernacle was, but what we do know is that the law said that you could not have a sacrifice wherever you wanted to have the sacrifice. It had to be at the altar of the Lord, which is there at the tabernacle. That's problem number one. Problem number two is that the men of Beth Shemesh are offering sacrifices. They're offering sacrifices under the supervision of the Levitical priests. Wrong, wrong, wrong a blatant violation of the law the law said that only the Aaronic priests were authorized to offer the sacrifices exodus 28 leviticus 8 through 10 not the levites the levites were never authorized to offer sacrifices and certainly not just a regular joe i mean that's what we have here we have a bunch of regular joes who are offering sacrifices to yahweh and the levitical priests are looking on doing good job pal and the Levitical priests aren't even authorized to have to, to offer the sacrifices in the first place. Something is wrong. They're offering sacrifices in the wrong location, and the wrong people are offering sacrifices, and they're offering the wrong sacrifices. Number three, they're offering these female cows. You're supposed to offer a male sacrifice, a male ox or a goat or a sheep. Leviticus 1 Leviticus 22, what's happening is that Israel is not respecting the holiness of God. Remember, we're we're seeing three things this evening. The sovereignty of God, the omnipotence of God, and the holiness of God. Now we're getting to the holiness. The holiness of God demands that worship of God be done according to his terms. The Philistines have just learned this, and now Israel is about to painfully learn it. They used to know it but they've forgotten it. 
because they've adopted the ways of the pagan culture that surrounded Israel. We're about to see very severe consequences for the Israelites approaching God on their own terms. But first, before we see that, we get a little side note in terms of these five golden tumors and five golden mice. Look at verse 17. These are the golden tumors which the Philistines returned for a guilt offering to the Lord. One for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, one for Ekron. And the golden mice, according to the number of the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both of fortified cities and of country villages, the large stone on which they set the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua the Bethshemite. What this is doing, these two verses here, are just unpacking, just giving us a little bit more detail from verses 4 and 5 of chapter 6. What they're telling us is that although the ark was housed only at three Philistine cities, remember Ashdod, Gath, and Ekron, all five cities suffered the plague. All five cities suffered the plague that God sent. And so even the other two cities, Gaza and Ashkelon, they had the same plague. So all five Philistine rulers are the ones who created these ten golden images. Each ruler had to create one mouse, one golden mouse and one golden tumor. That's just kind of a side note that we're getting from the writer here. Then we get back to Israel and the, and the ark. As we close this evening, look at verse 19. He struck, the he there is the Lord. The Lord struck down some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. He struck down all of all the people, 50,070 men. And the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great slaughter. The men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up from us? Here we are seeing the uncompromising holiness, absolute, intolerant holiness of God. God doesn't tolerate idolatry. The scripture describes God as a jealous God. That doesn't mean jealous, oh hey, I want that guy's Ferrari the way we think of jealousy. I want that thing that that guy has. Not that way. God is not sinful. It is jealous in the sense that God does not tolerate disrespect for his holiness. Now he may delay punishment in his mercy, but there's always, always, always a reckoning. Now for the men of Beth Shemesh, they get the reckoning right up front. God is not only sovereign and omnipotent, but he is absolutely holy. And he uses his sovereignty and his omnipotence to guard, to guard his holiness. You see, all of these attributes of, of God work together. We don't just worship a God who is love and mercy and compassion. He is that, but he's also a God who is absolutely holy and tolerates zero offense to his holiness. And you see this. They just look at it. They just look in the ark. I mean, come on, God. Is that really that serious? That you would slaughter so many? We'll see before we get to the end of the book of Second Sam, Samuel that someone just touched the ark as it's slipping and it's falling off a cart. They just touched it to keep it on the ark to protect it and God immediately kills him. Because God doesn't tolerate the attack on his holiness. He may delay it. But it is always something that brings a reckoning. The Mosaic law 
provided that no one could touch the ark of God, not even the priests, not even the Levitical priests who were in charge of tending to the ark. They had to get a pole and stick it through the, the, the rings on the ark. They had to stick it through the rings, but they weren't allowed to even touch it or even look at it when it's in the holy of holy. It was very serious. And certainly, no one was allowed to look into the ark to see the, what was in it. The two tablets of the Ten Commandments or Aaron's rod that budded or the jar of manna. Maybe the Israelites were looking in to see if the Philistines stole that stuff that was those, those sacred items. I shouldn't say stuff. Those sacred items that were inside the ark. Maybe they're just checking. We don't know. God doesn't care because they have disrespected the holiness of God. Numbers 4.5 and Numbers 4.15 and 4.20 provide strict rules about not touching or looking even at the ark. Anyone who violated, violated this would die. God gave the warning early, early on in the Mosaic Law. Remember, the ark of God represents the throne of God and God takes His holiness very, very seriously. God's holiness means two things. It means that He has and is absolute moral purity, number one. And number two, it means that he is completely other. He is utterly distinct, not common, utterly distinct from anything and anyone else. This otherness aspect of holiness is what's in view here. The word that is used for holy in our passage here is the Hebrew word kadosh, it's the word that the seraphim declare, Kadosh, 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 Yahweh, Sabaoth, in Isaiah 6, when Isaiah is caught up in the vision and he sees the Lord on his throne, lofty and exalted, and the seraphim are hovering almost like bees around the throne of God. They're saying, Kadosh, 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 same word, holy. In the Hebrew, it means, if you want the literal meaning, it means awesome. Awesome. Removed from profane usage, it means commanding respect. This is not what the Israelites, what the men of Beth Shemesh are doing. They are disrespecting God by peeking into the ark, and the consequences were severe. The Israelites should have known if God judged the Philistines by sending a plague of hemorrhoids through rats, then surely God will judge us, who know better than to treat God's ark with disrespect. Some manuscripts say that it's 70 who were killed by God as opposed to 50,070. Those manuscripts, if those manuscripts are right, then there was a scribal error. And it's not like our digits. In, in Hebrew, it's not like our digits where you have a bunch of digits. You know, that, that'd be a huge scribal error the difference between 50,070 and 70 in modern um, Arabic numbers. But that's not how the, the numeric numbers of the Hebrew work. And so if it was a scribal error, as some manuscripts would suggest, then we're talking about 70. That makes no difference. Whether it's 70 that God killed on the spot or 50,070, the point is that God is utterly intolerant to, his, to an attack on His holiness. We must always approach God on His terms, not on ours. And we must do so with absolute respect. Absolute, awesome 
respect. Why? Because he is God and we are not. It's just that simple. It's that simple. One day he will bring justice to everyone who disrespects him. Soon. Soon. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you challenge us to approach you in awe and wonder and with absolute respect. Remind us that there are consequences for our failure to do so. Challenge us to approach you in wonder and to take your holiness serious, seriously. Challenge us to approach you on your terms and help us be a light in a world that is full of darkness. Help us speak the truth in love, but help us speak it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.